0: Welcome to Bringing Design Closer, the podcast focused on discussing design's role in tackling complex societal issues. Our goal is to have conversations that inspire and help move the dial forward for organisations to become more human-centred in their approach to solving complex business and societal problems. In this episode, we welcome Ava Moog back onto the show. For long-time listeners, you might remember Ava's episode in July 2019 about designing against domestic violence, and since then Ava's been busy working through the pandemic and has completed her first book, Design for Safety, on A Book Apart. I'll throw a link to that one in the show notes. This episode may be a trigger for some people, so if you are a survivor of domestic violence or have suffered trauma of any sort, I wanted to let you know that we cover off topics such as gaslighting, domestic violence and abuse throughout this episode. Anyway, let's jump straight in. Ava, it's great to welcome you back to Bringing Design Closer.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me back.
0: Lots and lots and lots of things have happened in the two years since we last spoke. You were on the podcast and we were talking about designing about tech and safety and the impacts of tech and how it can lead to all these awful things. Obviously, we're in the middle of a global pandemic still and things are changing. But, you know, more to the point, you've been busy like a squirrel writing a book <laughs> called Design for Safety out on a book apart today, correct?
1: Yes. Yes. Today is the launch day.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So it's just out of the gate. But well, maybe tell us a little bit about what the writing process was like for the book itself.
1: Yeah, sure. So I wrote it, took about a year. I actually, it's really interesting, the process to get a book proposal accepted for anyone who's interested, because I know that this felt very mysterious to me and I had no idea and felt like it was something I could never do until I talked to someone who had done it. And they explained that actually, you just you submit your book proposal, essentially a detailed outline with some other information about who you are and your topic. And then you get your book proposal accepted. And then you write the book, you don't write the book, and then try to ship it around, which with fiction, you do have to do that. If you write a novel, you write the book and then you mm. try to publish it but
0: Upfront.
1: so with this book yeah I submitted the proposal was really happy A Book Apart was my first choice and they accepted it and then I started writing pretty much right away and most part of the rest of the year spent writing it and editing it and working with their really awesome editing team made it all just like work so well the way that we ended up structuring it I'm really really happy with it so yeah obviously was writing during the pandemic which was nice in one way yeah. Cause I wasn't, you know, there is no FOMO. Like it's not like my friends are hanging out. It's, I'm not going to miss anything to stay in and write, but yeah, it was also tough in some ways. Cause I was like, man, I could really use some time to like, Kinda you know, I'm still fortuitous. working full time yeah. at a software consultancy called a flight, which is great. But then a lot of my free time was, was spent writing. So it was kind of a mixed bag, mm. but overall it was a good experience.
0: So imagine you're out and about in a post pandemic world, and you meet somebody at a party and they're like, hey, I hear you, you've written a book. What's the book about? How would you describe it to somebody else?
1: Yeah. So my elevator pitch is called Design for Safety. And it's about the ways that tech enables interpersonal harm, especially domestic violence, and what we as the people who are designing and building the tech can do to fix it.
0: Okay. So as regards the for technology, some people might be kind of like, what does that mean?
1: For sure. So a couple different like broad areas where this comes into play. The one that most people are familiar with and can grasp really quickly is stalking. Obviously, technology enables so many different types of stalking. There's so many different methods out there Mm. that are really easy for people to use. And, you know, what I'm talking about specifically is people who have some type of relationship with each other as opposed to like anonymous creeper on the Internet. talking about like domestic partners, parents, family members, sometimes employers do a lot of this. There can be a lot of surveillance more than stalking with employers, but so it's kind of thinking about the ways that people, if you have access to someone's phone, you have their pin code or their password because those aren't exactly private in domestic abuse contexts. You can just share their location with your phone and you could do it secretly and they just don't even know about it. They might get the email from Google in Mm. 30 days that has a summary, but a lot of damage can be done in that time. In some cases,
0: people might kind of go, you started with a new business and they give you a mobile phone and you rush through the setup of it, especially in the remote sense now, the moment where things get sent out to you through UPS, whatever, and you hit accept, accept, accept. And then you might kind of have that kind of uneasiness bit from kind of going, well, they could access my Gmail and they could access my whatever social media is, Twitter or whatever. And then you might say it to somebody else and they might be like, oh, you're just being paranoid. What do you say to people like that who have done this? Like I've probably done it in the past when I've worked for businesses. Is that a sense of a paranoia or is there is a realism against this?
1: I think it's definitely a realism. And yeah, that's interesting you use the word paranoid because I feel like we we use that word and to sort of mean that it's like it's an unfounded anxiety, but it's like, no, you can be paranoid and be totally right, like. People can actually be watching you or trying to do something bad, hmm. and I would say that that definitely comes from a real place of understanding that you don't understand exactly what might be happening. That that's something that came up like again and again in my research. Is people kind of have a sense that something is happening; they don't know exactly what it is. They definitely don't know like how to identify it, much less hmm. prevent it from happening. But there's a sense like they know, like I don't know how, but players watching me or my like husband or wife, whoever is watching me, or they they know too much, and I don't know exactly how they're doing it, but I know it's happening. Hmm. That definitely comes up a lot.
0: When you say your employer is watching you, walk me through what that means. Like some people might kind of go, "What are they talking about? Are they looking at a webcam through me?" Like what can they do? Paint the picture for us.
1: So this isn't really. So I'll I'll be totally honest. It's not a huge focus in the book or in my work, but it is something that I've learned a bit about and I'm really interested in, especially. Since So my husband, he's a student, he's back in school, and has had some similar things of sort of being monitored during his test taking and whatnot. It's actually pretty similar between students as well as some employers who want to be able to sort of like micromanage their employees who have now gone remote, where there's different softwares you can use to make sure that people, you know, don't have other browsers up. There's even something that you can set up that'll access your camera and sort of like watch the room. The idea is that it's can't have like study notes up or you can't leave your desk during the workday or during certain times or whatever. So just these really sort of creepy, invasive things that are ostensibly to help ensure like fairness during a test or to ensure that Mm. your employee is actually working when they say they're working. And it really comes down to, like a need for control, I think, as well as a huge lack of trust when, especially with the employee surveillance part. And the thing is, is that like this stuff doesn't ever, it's not actually very effective because employees will find a way they'll figure out like exactly what's going on and figure out a way around it. So it's only effective for maybe a short while or with certain people who aren't gonna resist too much, but most people do resist. And yeah, so this is a little different from the more like interpersonal harm between like couples or families yeah where it's less clear what's happening this is definitely a thing the surveillance the normalization of surveillance is something i talk about in the book how it's just becoming such a standard thing that people are starting to accept as normal and how that's really harmful and we should be resisting that
0: yeah i was saying before and i think it's part of a cycle that aral balkan we've had on the podcast before does wonderful work talking about surveillance capitalism and how the impacts of that surveillance capitalism, that whole kind of greed for your data as kind of means to make money and generate some sort of capital and revenue for the businesses. You're talking about the impacts that potentially these poor decision processes can have in the real world and in life. If you haven't listened to the RL Balkan podcast, folks, I'll throw a link to that one in the show notes as well. It's definitely interlinked to what we're talking about here. But Ava, I want to ask you a question about, you mentioned there about uh, domestic violence and couples and partners and so forth. Can you give me an example of technologies that within the home, for argument's sake, that can be used and for a bad? Give me an example of some of that stuff.
1: Yeah, for sure. So just keeping on the theme of surveillance, there's a ton of products out there that lend themselves to surveilling people in the home without their consent. They might know that camera's there, but they can't do anything about it. They can't turn it off. They just have to live with, you know, knowing that their partner, their parent or whoever might be watching them at all times. Amazon has a lot of these products, you know, Amazon owns Ring is a really problematic hmm. product in so many different ways, but that's one that people are using a lot, you know, you set it up in your house for ostensibly for security reasons, you want to make sure things are safe, you want to catch package thieves, whatever it is, but then you're actually, you know, using it to watch people in the home while you're at work or while you're away something I heard a lot is people listening in on phone conversations. So, or even therapy sessions. So, you know, you think you're talking to your Mm -hmm. best friend or your sister, whoever support you have while you're going through this dangerous experience of domestic violence. And then actually the abuser can hear all that. And now you're kind of losing out on these really, really crucial support networks because you can't have a private conversation in your home. Mm. That's a big one.
0: That erodes trust, I guess, like those kind of Suspicions around trust, which is a huge thing for vulnerable people who are looking to get some sort of support system, help them through those kind of yeah life stages or absolutely. problems that they're having within their life. Yeah, to be
1: faced with because isolation is such a key part of domestic violence. Abusers will, you know, slowly over time isolate their victim away from their support networks, and the amount of surveillance that's available is just another tool to do that, like really, really effectively. So it's another. Pretty much all this stuff, it's recreating things that abusers were already doing, but it's making, it's giving them the ability to make their abuse just like completely like everywhere, just total control. Like they really, a lot of the victims will talk about feeling like their abusers had this like omnipresence, like they're always, they're in their phones, they're in their laptops, they're watching as they cook dinner through a camera. Like they're literally always there and always watching or reading what they're writing and That's obviously psychologically really tense and has some really awful impacts.
0: It kind of strikes me that when you're talking about this thing, when I was growing up, when we used to watch horror movies and when a stranger calls as one, like, you know, that whole kind of eeriness of when someone rings the doorbell and they're not there. It's like these tech tools have become the perfect sort of abuse toolkit in many ways, because they're invisible to many people. And it's it sort of echoes that whole kind of horror movies sort of where it feels really uneasy when you're talking about these things because we're surrounded by them. Like, am I right in saying that there's an imbalance there? Like if if one partner has as much power over the technology, it creates this sense of imbalance and how power kind of can impact this stuff. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. One of my chapters, chapter two is titled Who's in Control? And it's all about those sort of power imbalances that a lot of this technology is facilitating and making honestly just really really easy for the person who is looking for ways to take control to do that and to enact power over the other person the home devices are a big one for that you know you just you don't share the password you just don't set it up on the other person's device and even if they're more tech savvy you know there's still ways to withhold that information and not give them access but a lot of times people aren't tech savvy and something you know going back to the original thing about that you had asked about like paranoia or like there's so many different ways to sort of shift blame onto the survivor like such as minimizing their fears like oh you're just being paranoid but another one is by yeah saying like well they just need to understand how these products work they need to be you know informed users and I feel like that it's demanding such a high level of tech literacy that I think those of us who work in tech take for granted that we can usually figure something out if we don't know exactly you know we're used to doing research like googling how to troubleshoot different things and that's not a skill that you know most people have and demanding like a really high level of tech literacy from victims is like i think a really problematic thing that people claim as a solution that is actually not in any way a solution to this problem
0: mm. in many ways that imbalance automatically makes one person potentially vulnerable to abuse. You may not even know that that, this thing is happening, which I don't mean to sound like I'm trying to be alarmist, but the risk is always there. It's something that can persist.
1: Yeah. No, be an alarmist. This stuff is alarming and it's really common. So I don't know statistics for Ireland off the top of my head, but in the US it's one in three women, one in four men who are subjected to domestic violence at some point Mm. in their lives. Like this is really, really common. And the stuff happening in tech is really scary. And there's, I talk about this in the book, in the surveillance vein, there's stalkerware, which is a little different because it's not, you know, like Ring products have this sort of legitimate use case that it's for your home security, whatnot. They're not selling it specifically for people hmm. to use to monitor each other in these creepy ways. It has a legitimate use case where a stalkerware, also known as spyware or spouserware, is software that you can set up completely secretly on someone's device and it'll you know monitor all of their communications you can look at their call history like basically everything and there's nothing in the ui that alerts the person that this has been installed on their phone it's not in their apps like you need really sophisticated technology and like a security professional basically to identify it and that has been linked to multiple domestic violence homicides so like I'm all about being an alarmist because people are literally dying because of this stuff. And this stalkerware is somehow still legal. It's just kind of out of control that it's mm, okay. it's legal still in most countries. But yeah, but it's serious stuff.
0: So yeah, the cameras at the front of the house, the ring doorbells. I'm sure there's probably a few other competitors to ring as well at this stage. Remember the last time we spoke, we were talking about Alexa and the drop-in feature how has that evolved since we last spoke? Is that still there? Is Alexa still being mixed in with a lot of these anecdotal stories that you have?
1: Yeah. Oh, man, I wish I could say that they had fixed that in the two years since we spoke, but they definitely have not. No, really? It is still just as bad. Interesting. Yeah, the Alexa
0: Echo. Which is unusual because you'd imagine Amazon would be all over that. They're pretty ethical.
1: <laughs> Good one. Yeah, no, man, Amazon is rough. Amazon comes up like over and over and over again in the book, so many examples of their products. And there's lots of issues outside of just the like way that they facilitate interpersonal harm. You know, they're working with different police departments to help them like get access to footage in a way that they don't have to get a court order. There's no judicial oversight. You know, they're helping all sorts of other ethical issues like that, which my editor Which this is good, but she was very much like, we got to keep it to the design and the topic of the book. We're going to take out some of your long-winded rants about all the reasons that Ring and Amazon are terrible in these other ways. It's not super relevant. But yeah, Amazon is bad. They are still, the Alexa issue is still very much present, except now there's also cameras involved. I think last time we talked, it was mostly just microphones and you could listen in on someone's audio if they were like on the phone. But now most, lots of these devices have been updated to have cameras One of the more recent things is they updated one of their devices to that previously had a camera. Now the camera can actually like follow you around. Like it kind of watches where you are and will like swivel to always display the screen and to always be watching you, which I think the use cases for something like you're moving around your kitchen and you have a recipe displayed on the screen and you want to be able to see it from wherever you are. But really, this is just another really cool tool for an abuser to be able to follow your movement and now maybe there was a corner in your kitchen where it that was out of spot out of sight of the camera where you could like send a private text message and now actually the camera's going to follow you around and you just have that much less privacy so things have gotten things have definitely gotten worse in terms of the Alexa since we last talked
0: yeah how can there's there's two things so just generally people out there who are surrounded by technology which is probably a lot of people who are listening to this podcast of technology is part of their lives how can they become more self-sufficient and self-aware to protect themselves both now and in the future?
1: That's a good question. But I also, I do want to, before I answer, just remind people that it's not their job to understand every piece of tech in their lives, Yeah, like the way that a designer or developer of that tech would. That's so much responsibility to mm. put on the user. So but my answer, which maybe some people mm. won't like this, is to just not have these products in the first place. And to not use, like, just because most of your friends have, like, shared their locations with their spouses, even if it's a mutual thing, Mm -hmm. like, if you don't want to do that or there's not a reason, like, don't do that. My husband is a big cyclist and Chicago is not a very safe biking city. So, like, he has some tool that tracks his rides that he uses for, yeah, yeah, yeah for like his metrics and whatnot, but it does have a location sharing feature. So I can see his location like only when he is on his bike rides and then, you know, the ride ends and then he turns the little computer that's on his bike off and then that's it. I don't see his location other than that, but I hopefully will know if he's been like hit by a car and is stranded somewhere. But other than that, you know, we don't track each other's location. So I feel like kind of resisting those things as much as possible, resisting Internet of Things devices Unless it makes sense for you. I feel like, sorry, this is becoming a very long answer, but like a lot of these devices or these products, like they do make sense for people in specific situations and they can be really useful and really awesome. But I think Hmm. part of the issue is that, you know, obviously the companies, they want to sell these devices as much as possible and they want to make it feel just like a standard thing. Like everyone has cameras in their houses, like everyone has echoes and dots and different sort of smart home assistants that are helping them out. But I guess I try to resist the normalization of that and really think critically about like, okay, do, like, is this product actually going to help me? Is it actually going to improve my life? Or is it just that hmm. it feels like it's a normal thing to have? And I have a, a lot of my friends have it. So I should probably have it too. And trying not to let the, these big tech companies determine what's actually going to be useful in your life. There's a lot of studies that have found that, or maybe not formal studies, a lot of data about the impact of home cameras just actually making people really anxious, mm. alerting them to lots of like ultimately petty, not super harmful crime in their area, but then just feeling like they're living in a neighborhood that's just like constantly under siege by criminals and all these things that aren't really true. But once you expose all that to people, it starts to change the way that they think about mm. their neighbors and their homes. So Anyway, so I guess my advice is to like kind of resist that and just think really critically, like, do I actually need this? And is it actually going to improve my life? Or is this just something that society is trying to tell me is normal because Amazon wants to sell more gadgets?
0: Yeah. And I mean, there's a lot to be said, especially at the moment amongst the pandemic. We're living in a heightened sense of fear anyway. We're fighting a, a big virus that's invisible and it's out there at the moment. So it does make it a lot easier for these businesses to sell stuff like this where it kind of like sells a better life that's easier and it's an easy self. We're, we're kind of like fish in a barrel. It's funny that you say that to me about painting the picture about the bad neighborhood. It was only last night, my wife, who's still on Facebook, um, I'm still working on her folks, and she saw a message on one of the local Facebook boards that there was a man going around opening car doors trying to find a week, a weakness. Some, some car doors were open and I went to bed and I was like, why did you tell me that? why did you tell me that? I'm like, you know, like now I'm about to go to sleep and I'm going to have one ear open all night waiting for a car door to open. And so it's true that these, sometimes that information as helpful as it seems and the intent behind posting that message was probably very, you know, sincere. Does it really serve us a purpose? That Like everyone who reads that in the neighborhood is suddenly suspicious of each other. So it is good to question these things. Like, you know, a few other things that I want to talk to you about, what does the big picture look like? So, Aral spoke about the surveillance capitalism and how it's going to, unless we just say no to these things and stop buying them and bringing them into our homes, the world is going to look like a very complicated place in the next number of years. What does the big picture look like? And also, second part of that question is, what can we as designers do if you're working in these organizations and a feature of a product comes along that you kind of go, I guess that could be used for harm? What should they do for that? How could they handle those conversations? And is it the designer's role really to tackle those conversations?
1: Yeah. So, yeah. okay. So the first part of your question, what does the big picture look like? I mean, it's pretty bleak. It's pretty alarming. I think a lot of these issues are sort of new, or at least, you know, in the grand scheme of things within mm. the last decade or so, which is ultimately pretty new in terms of the technology facilitated domestic violence and other forms of interpersonal harm. I am hopeful that we can still get a handle on it and like sort of hopefully shift the way that we think about this before it becomes just a normal thing to like not even think about this stuff. And hopefully that's the goal of the book is to help people understand that this is happening. You know, most people don't even realize like that's the number one thing that I would get after my conference talk is like, I just had no idea, literally no idea that this is happening. And now I know, but it is bad. And if we don't get a handle on it, it's just going to become something that, users are just going to have so many more tools, it's going to be rough. But I think there are, you know, the hopeful thing is that there are a lot of things we can do about it. And I do have an entire chapter about integrating safety into your practice. Mm. And it is the role of the designers, as well as developers, project managers, pretty much anyone Mm. who influences how a piece of tech is made, I think is responsible for this stuff. It's not just designers, although designers are sort of the obvious Mm. people to go be able to go through the process to identify harms and i think it starts before someone is thinking like oh this feature could be used for harm because a lot of times no one's thinking about that and Hmm. you need to kind of go through a little more rigorous process to identify the different harms and i've done this a a bunch of times and there's always things that i Hmm. see right away that i'm like oh well this is definitely going to be a surveillance issue or this is going to be Someone's going to be able to use this information in a bad way. And then you go through the process mm. and there's a dozen more things come up that I would never have thought about. And I'm living in this whole sad world for years now. So mm. there's always things that basically going through like a sort of very structured brainstorming can identify. But I do have a whole chapter about this and like specifically how, how to sort of inject yeah. this into your design process how to do it in a way that's not going to eat up a ton of time. Cause I know a lot of times, you know, stakeholders will say like, ah, oh, okay. no, we don't have to worry about that. Or like, how much is that going to cost me? So kind of dealing with those types of areas of pushback as well is something I cover. But yeah, it's yeah. a whole process in the book.
0: Absolutely. Because like something like this, there isn't a rectangle in the lean canvas, you know what I mean? For stuff like this. And it's almost as if, teams just keep on doing usability testing and validation testing. They miss all this stuff. This stuff is like behind the curtain. It's when you involve real users who are using the product and get that sort of real sense of feedback. But if you're not looking for it, you're not going to see it. So it's about being aware of these things.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah, something that I really try to do in the book and just in my talk and like anything that I'm working on in general is to to give those like mm. really specific instructions. Cause I feel like I would always read about something like surveillance capitalism or racist algorithms, whatever it is, and people get really fired up. They're like, This is horrible. Yeah. I want to do something about it, but then there's no sort of clear takeaway and I don't want to just tell people like, oh, you need to think about this because what is that to like a busy designer? Like, do you think about it in the research process? Like when you're wireframing, like Mm -hmm. when do you do that and what does that actually look like? So I do have like a very specific process of like take time during the research phase to do research, like try to find, you know, similar products that have had issues that could inform issues that your product might Mm -hmm. have and then do a brainstorm for completely novel abuse cases that yeah. have not there's no you know news or articles or studies on this but that could be facilitated hmm. by your product you know start by thinking about how would you make a black mirror episode about this those are actually really fun discussions people usually get really wild and then you kind of have to rein it back in and be like okay so exactly. let's talk more about like now that we've got this starting point what are some more realistic yeah. issues and then people are usually able to to think about more realistic problems yeah so like having that process early on and then i sort of have different steps throughout the different parts of the design process that you know teams can use as are relevant it probably won't Mm. be that every team needs to go through every step every time but there are different very specific things that teams can sort of inject into their existing process
0: there's so much stuff that you can actually do to improve your process folks and i'm excited to get this book just out today. So that's it sounds like there's gonna be some really good stuff in there. if if people want to reach out to you and continue the conversation with yourself, what's the best way for people to do that?
1: Yeah. So people can honestly just use my work email. So I should mention that so the place I work a Light software consultancy, but we're starting up a sort of I guess like mini line of business within the design team for specifically, you know, working on safety issues. So helping helping people identify like, yeah, which parts of the process make sense, how to implement it, doing like retrofitting safety work to identify places where their existing product is potentially causing harm and sort of fixing it after the fact. So yeah, so people, Eva at dot my work email, I also have Twitter, EPenzimoog DMs are always open.
0: Yeah, absolutely. you're on LinkedIn as well, aren't you? Ah, great. absolutely I'll throw a link to that as well so Ava thanks so much for your time
1: yeah thank you so much for having me this is a very fun discussion
0: so there you have it that's all for this episode of bringing design closer if you like this episode feel free to visit thisishcd.com where you can access our back catalogue of over 100 episodes with episodes related to service design product management, design research and much much more if you're interested in design and innovation training, feel free to check out our business, thisisdoing.com, where you can join online classrooms and learn from the world's best design and innovation leaders. Join the This Is HCD newsletter where you'll receive updates from the network. And also, if you're interested, apply to join the Slack community on thisishadecd.com. Stay safe and until next time, take care.